That being said, would you stand now as we listen to the rest afforded to us in God's Word this morning from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If you don't, you'll find a pew Bible in front of you. It's blue. It's on page 872. Or even more easily, you'll find the verses printed in your bulletin this morning. I want you to know that we are continuing this morning our focus on the cross of Jesus Christ as we begin yet another school year uh, with all the commotion, with all the excitement, with all the disorientation about having to say goodbye to the summer and hello again to forgotten routines. It's good in that time to remember what it is that really anchors us, what forges our identity, what is central to our identity when seasons change. That is the cross. For a Christian, our life, our assurance, our hope. So let's read together now chapter 13 of Luke's gospel, verses 1 through 9, and receive God's word for us as it stands this morning. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and the man came seeking fruit on the fig tree, and he found none. And so he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? The vine dresser answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your spirit to lead us this morning to see ourselves in this story, and we pray that you would once again give us out of the fullness of who Jesus is what we need to move into our weeks, the days ahead, and to our callings with your grace and mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the year 1900, in a speech on New Year's Day, Lord Kelvin, who was the world's most noted physicist at the time, made this declaration. He said, there is nothing new to be discovered in physics anymore. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. And if you laugh, you probably sort of put the timeline together and realize that only five years later, a young Swiss patent office clerk named Albert Einstein wrote five little essays in his spare time that overturned the world of physics as we knew it and brought to our attention worlds in our world that Lord Kelvin could have never imagined. What's the lesson there? Well, even if you're an expert, it's easy to collapse into thinking that something familiar to you has nothing left new to teach you. Probably heard of the solar eclipse this past week, maybe a few of you right? I read an article after the eclipse um, from, uh, from a, uh, um, online, and the writer of the article noted that scientists will be studying those two minutes of totality for years to come, 
because it afforded us the opportunity to see parts of the sun that you can't see at any other point. It's called the sun's corona. It's the atmosphere that's obscured by the sun's light at any other time. Now wrap your head around that for a moment. There is probably no object in the history of the human race that has been studied more than the sun. With all the time that we have and with all the technology we have, scientists are still telling us that we have more to see, that we have more to learn. What about the cross of Jesus Christ? The cross is a familiar story, a familiar symbol of our faith. No doubt many of you here this morning know the story of Jesus dying on the cross. You probably even, many of you know the theological impact of his death. That is to save us from our sin, to to bear the curse and the wrath of God in our place. Do you think the cross has anything new to teach you this morning? Any fresh experience with God to give you? Any new world to unfold for you? Our senior pastor, Mark Davis, has spent the last few weeks reminding us of the centrality of the cross in the Christian life. And I just want to expand on his charge this morning and challenge you that when you come to the cross that you would expect freshness there. That's how the writers of the New Testament saw it. When James, uh, when Paul, when Peter write about the cross, they don't just write about the cross as if it's some historical event to affirm. They write about the cross as if it's a new way of life that keeps unfolding before us. That takes us deeper and deeper into the very heart of God. In our passage this morning, we have a parable about God's mercy, and the parable finds its fulfillment at the cross. And if you want to think about specific application as we move along this morning, I want you to keep in mind this. Keep in mind a situation in your life that has really come to test your resolve. A situation in your life that has come to test your stamina, your your hope. A situation that you look at even now this morning in which there seems to be no efficient, easy, ready-made, obvious solution. For example, trying to help and love a child who is struggling. Living with a medical condition that won't go away. Working in ministry or in giving care with little results to show for it. As Bill and Brenda and Amy and Ricardo mentioned this morning, perhaps it's a marriage that's been stuck in the same place for a long time. Does the mercy of the cross have anything to say for us, to us, in a dry and weary land, in places like that, where water seems so scarce? Keep that in mind, and we'll return to it at the end this morning. Two main points I want you to see from our passage. The first thing I want you to see is mercy as something that we need. Mercy is our need from verses 1 through 5, the setting of the parable. And then second, mercy is God's provision, verses 6 through 9. So mercy is our need, and then second, mercy is God's provision. First, mercy is our need, verses 1 through 5. As is often the case when Jesus tells a parable, there's, there's usually a setting that prompts the story itself, and it's no different in our text this morning. So what is the setting of the parable? 
Well, much like in our own time, the political situation in Jesus' time at this moment is extremely tense. It's incendiary. Pagan Rome rules over uh, the, the, uh, Jerusalem, hallowed Jerusalem. And there are some in Israel who are so zealous for that to change, who so want that to change that they are willing to stir the population to violence in the name of God, in the name of justice, to get those results. It's in this context that some people, Luke tells us, appear on the scene and they are in a tizzy about a rumored national atrocity. So Pilate, maybe you've heard the name before, but Pilate, the the villain, right, the governor of Judea, is accused of slaughtering Galilean Jews in the act of worship. And in contempt for what they hold so sacred and dear, mingling their blood with the blood of the temple sacrifices. I mean, absolutely horrid. Despicable as as low as he could go. Well, all accounts, it's not true. It's fake news. It's most likely a rumor meant to provoke the fear and hatred of the people towards Rome and to cite them, incite them to action. It is ancient fear-mongering among religious people. And what they have before them is an opportunity to see how Jesus, this new important rabbi on the scene, how he will respond to their cause. Wouldn't it be nice for Jesus to hear their story and publicly rise up to pronounce judgment on those evil Romans? To call on God to smite the house of the pagans. Wouldn't it be nice to have Jesus endorse their cause? Well, if you've read much in the Gospels, maybe you've noticed that when people try to recruit Jesus to their agenda, it just never goes well for them. I remember after Jada gave birth to our first child, as soon as the delivery was over, and it was a long delivery, um, I said, wow, sweetheart, and I sat down. I said, I am so exhausted. (laughs) So clearly the wrong move at that moment, right? So for some reason, I thought that labor meant the fact that I was on my feet for six hours and that I was holding her hand and I was breathing with her, but no, labor actually was hers. I had it all backwards. You know, where people get Jesus wrong most often, where they get him backwards, is that they come to him wanting him to follow them. And the only way you can come to Jesus is if you're willing to actually go and follow him. We get it mixed up. So, for example, see the the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. See the men who want to stone an adulterous woman in John 8. See the disciple Peter who is convinced that his faith will never be weak enough to show disloyalty to Jesus, Luke 22. See this crowd with their own political views. What Jesus does in the moments where people come to him and ask him to endorse their agenda most often is not give people what they want. What he does instead is he deconstructs whatever they've gripped onto for righteousness that is not him. I mean, you'll see it over and over in the Gospels. It's like he's picking them upside down and kind of like shaking their pockets, shaking the pockets of their hearts and outfalls their idols, whatever they really care about. 
And so, for example, here, these national zealots want to talk about their national enemy. They want to talk about a just cause. They want to talk about Rome, the enemy. And Jesus says, no, let me press you to think about a much more more serious enemy that is at your door, and that is the sin that lies in your own hearts. You see, unless you repent, you also likewise will perish. And we could pause here and say, this is really a temptation for any of us. The temptation goes like this. Whenever you find yourself fighting for a cause that is just, a cause that is good, a cause that is right, it could be a national cause, it could be a social cause in our city, it could be something important for your marriage, where you feel like you're on the right side of it, something for you as a parent, something in the school system. It can be a vision that we hold dear as a church that is good and right. Jesus says the temptation here is to think that the struggle for justice, the struggle for what is right, is what makes us right. That if we fight the bad, that somehow makes us good. But oh no. Jesus says you will never justify yourself by your works. No matter how good your struggle is, for good things. Unless you repent, unless we open ourselves up to the scrutiny of God, then we too will perish. You know, one of my favorite pictures of this comes from the book East of Eden. It was written by John Steinbeck. And in the book, uh, Steinbeck paints a picture that just has stayed with me for years. Here's the picture. He says this, maybe we all have in us a secret pond where evil and ugly things germinate and grow strong. But this culture is fenced, and the swimming brood climbs up only to fall back again. Might it not be in the dark pools of some men that evil grows strong enough to wriggle over the fence and swim free? Would not such a man be our monster? And are are we not related to him in our own hidden water? You see what he's saying? That we are related to each other, even our enemies, in our own hidden water. The ugly pond is inside all of us. And here's the temptation for religious people. The temptation for religious and moral people, for these just people, is to concentrate on the height and strength of our fences to keep the ugliness contained. And Jesus says over and over again in the Gospels, I am not interested in your fences. I want the darkness of your ponds. I want the evil that is embedded in your heart. Thus he deconstructs these nationalists and shows that we all have this ongoing, continual need for mercy. And so maybe, just maybe in your own life this morning, if you want to think about application, maybe it would be good to step away from the 24-hour news cycle every once in a while. Maybe it would be good to step away just for a moment, daily moments, for the struggle that consumes you, and to dare to look with Jesus, not apart from him, but with him, at the darkness of your own pond, at the self-righteousness and pride and greed and whatever else you might find there that is fenced inside of your own heart. The reason Jesus is doing all of this before he tells the parable is because he knows this, and this is true, you'll hear us say this a lot, I think is that in order to be someone who understands mercy 
and who practices mercy, you have to first be someone who understands and feels your need of it. You have to, it's not just sort of like, I know it, it's, I've got a sense that I have a deep need to sit under the scrutiny of God and beg for Jesus' mercy. And that, friends, is what actually prepares us to hear the parable. So now to the parable, God's provision. Verses six through nine. The parable is fairly simple. I want you to read it this morning with one big caveat. The temptation, I think, for Christians to read the parable is to read the vineyard owner as God the Father and to read the vine dresser as God the Son. Don't read it that way. It's not true to the character of God. It's not true that God the Father is the one who's always pressing for judgment and the Son is then the one who's always staying the hand of judgment. Don't read it that way. Instead, read it this way. Read it as if the vine vineyard owner and the vine dresser represent the tension between two very important attributes of God. That is the attribute of judgment and the attribute of mercy. The precedent for reading the parable this way, this is important, is, is the Old Testament itself where these conversations appear in books like Hosea and Isaiah. And so let's look at the voices for a moment because we're meant to feel the tension. First, hear from judgment, the case for judgment from the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner has tended this fig tree for nine years. I didn't misread that. It says three years in the text. How do we get to nine? Well, the first three years of owning a fruit tree of any kind was just to give it time to grow into the soil and, and to prepare to bear fruit. And if you look back at Leviticus 19, Jewish vineyard owners were supposed to give the tree three more years for the fruit to mature. And then Leviticus 19 says, on year seven, you come back and you collect the fruit, but all that fruit on that year is meant as a thank offering to God. And so what the vineyard owner is doing is he's coming back to collect the thank offering that belongs to the Lord. He has come back in year seven. He has come back in year eight. He has come back now in year nine. And he has been disappointed year after year after year. Fruitless. And not only that, but he has the rest of the vineyard to take care of. And as the parable suggests, the tree is actually bleeding nutrients. It is bleeding health from the rest of the vineyard. When is it ever time to say enough is enough? Enough is enough. You see the case for judgment? You know, we often think about judgment as something that's motivated by a lack of compassion. But the judgment of God is to excise or to remove the toxic thing for the health of everything else. So friends, you practice that every time you remove a weed from your yard for the health of your lawn. Every time you remove a blemish for your face for the health of your skin, every time that you delete a line in your email for the good of the overall message, you are imaging God in the way that he practices judgment. You are bearing the image of judgment. You can fill the pool here, can't you? This guy's looked at an exhausting situation. He feels hopeless and helpless. And he says, enough is enough. This is bleeding my resources and it's returning no fruit. And so just cut it down. Cut it down. 
And now mercy speaks. Right? The vine dresser steps in, and what does the vine dresser say there in the parable? It's translated as let it be. The word let it be there is in the Greek word, the word aphes. Aphes. Let it be. Give it more time. Give it more patience. Give it more suffering. And even more than that, you, tell you what, you let it alone. You let it be. And let the tree for one more year feed on my work, on my toil, on my sweat, on my sacrifice. And you come back next year and see if there's fruit to be had now. Aphase, let it be. What can bring fruit to a barren tree? What can raise the dead to life? What can restore hope? Jesus says that mercy, the work of mercy, is the strongest candidate to bring life where there is none. You know, we don't know what the vineyard owner decides. It's left open intentionally. But we do know this. Soon the word aphase will appear on Jesus' tongue once again. Luke has him using that word, that exact Greek word, on the cross. In Luke 23, 34. And it's there in Luke's gospel on the cross that Jesus looks down and he sees all the people that have put him there, right? He sees the mockers. He sees the impenitent. He sees for the first time brought together the religious people with their high fences and the pagan Romans together. And they are celebrating his demise. And Luke says that Jesus looks down from the cross and he says what? He says, Father, cut them down. He says, Father, uproot them. Enough is enough. No, he says, Father, aphase. Father, let them be. There in Luke, it's translated as, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What is Luke wanting us to see here with this parable? The drama of this story is not just a story meant to warm our hearts about who God may or may not be and how things get left off. The drama of this parable is actually played out in the flesh on the cross, where the tension between God's judgment and God's mercy is resolved in God the Son being cut down in our place. You see, it's at the cross that you receive mercy's full pardon, aphes. It's at the cross that the hand of judgment is, is stayed, not only for one more year to come, but for all the years to come in your life. At the cross, the life of Jesus bleeds to feed you so that you who are rooted in him can never be cut down. What Luke wants us to see is that at the cross, that's where your health, your renewal, your fruitfulness begins. Friends, when you are weary this year, when you see little or no fruit around you, when you find yourself doubting the goodness of God, when you can't bear any semblance of hope and faith and love, where will you turn? Luke says at the cross you will find the streams of mercy. And those streams are never ending, never ceasing for you. Robert Robinson was an English clergyman who lived in the 18th century. Not only was Robinson a gifted pastor, preacher, but he was also a gifted poet and hymn writer. He labored for many years in the ministry, but as often happens, he got tired. His faith began to drift. He left the ministry altogether, left the faith altogether, 
And his path sort of meandered and he wound up in Paris where he indulged himself in a life of sin. One night Robinson was riding in a carriage with a Parisian socialite who had recently been converted to Jesus Christ. She was interested in Robinson's opinion on some poetry that she was reading. The poetry went like this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune thy heart, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for hymns of loudest praise. She read those words and she looked up and she saw Robinson there and he was weeping. And he said, ma'am, what do I think of those words? I wrote those words many years ago. But now I've drifted away from God. And I cannot find my way back. And the woman looked at Robinson and she said, don't you see, sir? The way back to him is written right here in the third line of your poem. Streams of mercy never ceasing. She said, Mr. Robinson, those streams are flowing for you even here in Paris tonight. That night, Robinson recommitted his life to Christ. The way back for Robinson is the same way for all of us. It's the way back. It's the way forward. It's the only way. It is the streams of mercy that never cease. And don't you know, friends, that those streams of mercy are flowing for you even here this morning in Dallas, Texas. You know, I asked you to keep in mind a situation that has come to test your resolve, a situation that's come to test your stamina, your hope, a situation that's like going to a barren fig tree for years upon years and still finding no change. What should you do in a situation like that? And I'll say this as a caveat, every situation takes wisdom, no doubt. But here is one possibility that the cross unfolds for you this morning. Here we are at the beginning of a new school year, a new fall. What if you committed the situation that you just thought of to mercy's care for one more year? What if you resolved this year, once again, to work and to pray and to pray and to work and to return next year, next fall, to see expectantly what fruit maybe mercy has produced It may be that in the working and the praying, what Jesus really wants to do is show you that he can give you a second wind, a third wind, that he can give you a renewed vision and hope for whatever it is you're doing. And it may be that Jesus is interested in making alive and healthy what for now seems to you hopeless and barren. In a dry and a weary land with no water, what if mercy becomes the streams that you return to over and over and over again this year to sustain you? Convinced that as long as the death of Jesus Christ feeds your roots, that you can never be cut down. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray, God, that you would nourish us. That you would nourish us on the mercy of Jesus, that that mercy would lead us to repentance, to stand under God in your scrutiny, um, so that we might also stand under your grace. And we pray, Father, that you would make us bearers of mercy. Lord, agents of mercy in your world, give us the strength to sustain us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.